Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hi, this is Rob Dalrymple, and I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's podcast is from a course that I presented on the book of Daniel in 2011. If you'd like the lecture notes to accompany this presentation, I encourage you to log into my website, determinedtruth.wordpress.com, then click on the link on the left side of the page titled, Alphabetical Listing of All Classes. Then find the Book of Daniel class, and that'll take you to the page with a substantial set of lecture notes to help guide you through this course. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe and let others know as well. Thanks for tuning in, and here's our study of the Book of Daniel. But in a word of prayer for us all, since the third time's the charm, hopefully a little prayer might help. So, all right, Lord, we just give you praise now as we come into your sanctuary amongst brothers and sisters to fellowship. Uh, Father, we ask that um, we would be men and women who uh, are so saturated by your word, um, as people of your word, uh, as imitators of Christ, that when a pagan image is set before us, we would not even think of worshiping it. When we are confronted with the kingdoms of this world, we would recognize them for what they are, um, false images, and that we would give homage and allegiance and honor only to the stone that the builders rejected, the great mountain that's established as chief amongst all the mountains, Christ himself, the true image of God and that we would reflect that image in our own lives and know what that means. And we would just have that discernment that comes only from the power of your Spirit, only by being in relationship with you and in communion with you. And um, someday, Lord, we long to be in your presence in eternity, uh, where we can just hear, well done, thy good and faithful servants, enter into joy today. So in the meantime, equip us, uh, prepare us, and strengthen us in all things. And we thank you now and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. (coughs) All right, Daniel chapter 2. Again, to to kind of bring to a conclusion, maybe review a little bit what we did last week. Summarize it in case you weren't here last week. What what we've got in Daniel 2 is a vision that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has, a dream that he has, in which he sees this great statue. And anybody recall, what does the great statue represent? Four kingdoms, four kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar's statue is the head of gold. Of course, uh, the, the statue is made of items of decreasing value, so the feet become of clay, uh, but the head's of gold, so Nebuchadnezzar's all good with this, with this vision, because uh, you, O oh, great king, are the head of gold. And then what, we'll, what we noticed also about the statue last week, which we mentioned, was that the second and third kingdoms get very little attention at all. If you have your Bibles to chapter 2, it's verse 39. That's it. Two kingdoms, one verse. So, verses 36 through 38 is Nebuchadnezzar and the first, the first kingdom. Next two kingdoms get one verse, and then the next kingdom gets four verses. You know, 40 through 43. So, a more extended discussion. I note that now because we discussed again a number of times the parallels that are there between chapters 2 and chapter 7. And in chapter 7, it's the fourth kingdom. That's the focal point. All right, so we, we've got to be aware of that uh, for our sakes as well. But then, of course, there's a stone. And what was the nature of the stone? Not cut by human hands, right? Not made in China. Yeah. 
My daughter says that, by the way. Daddy, how come everything's made in China? You know, uh, uh, everything she seems to own, whatever, right? Uh, not human made. It's, it's not man made at all. I didn't mean that as derogatory, by the way, by the way, at anyone at all. Um, uh, not human made. Uh, divine in origin. Um, and so, in this stone that's not made with human hands, and that's references in verse thirty-four and then verse forty-five. Both make reference to the stone being cut without human hands. Um, then destroys. These four kingdoms. Now we'll note in Daniel 2, it destroys them all simultaneously. In Daniel 7, they're sequential. Well, it's really 7 through 11 now. Uh, They're sequential. It doesn't matter here. Irrelevant ultimately as well. So, the question then is, what's the stone? Uh, Now, I also want us to pay attention briefly here to verse 28 again, of Daniel chapter 2, where it says uh, that God's made known to you at the end of verse 28, or middle of it, what will take place in the latter days, as well as uh, verse 45, uh, near the end of the verse, it says, what will take place in the future? So we have this end times stone, as I've called it here in the supplemental outline now. The stone in the New Testament fulfillment. It's this end times stone. And the first point I wanted to make was, the stone refers to Jesus. And we read Matthew 14 last week, and Matthew 26 I'm sorry, Mark 14, in Matthew 26, 61, uh, 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 there, let me reference um, Matthew 26, 61, for our sakes right now. Matthew 26, uh, 61, there we go, M-A-T-T, 26, 61, and it says, uh, Jesus is quoted as saying, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days, uh, there, and uh, let's see. The other ref- in all honesty, the other references I want are down below here in the outline, and I, or I omitted them. Uh, here we go. So, trust me on this one. We'll get back to that point in a minute. Uh, they're both not made by human hands. All right. That's actually the Matthew, uh, the Mark passage. Mark uh, 15, was it? Is that right? 14.55. That's what I wanted. Thank you. 14.55. No such reference as Mark 154. So, Mark 15, 14.55. Here we go. Um, in, in Mark, by the way, Matthew's gospel doesn't say this, but Mark's gospel does. The Jews make the accusation, verse 58, we heard him say, thank you, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I'll build another made without hands. So that's actually the reference that we wanted here for now. Um, that it's an end times temple that's not made with human hands, and it's being associated with Jesus here in this particular passage as well. All right, second, letter B, the end times stone is a temple, not made with human hands. And Acts chapter 7, this is Stephen's sermon. I didn't discuss this last week, so I'll bring it up now. Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, he says this. It gets him stoned, by the way. Ironically stoned. Um, However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? And then Paul says the same thing in Acts 17. I won't reference it now. We did look at 2 Corinthians 5, because that's where I want to bring us at the end. I'll I'll reference it now. Paul says, For we know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building, a house not made with hands, an eternal house in the heavens, or eternal in the heavens. So we'll bring up that verse here at the end of this discussion, or this review. Yes? 
Let's not even go there, if we will, because most everyone else is not even reading the commentary, so they have no idea what that conversation is about. So if I, if I can, I'll, I'll be happy to talk to you guys about that at a break or whatever. But the issue of the dating of Daniel, uh, if you notice, I didn't even discuss it uh, uh, in our introduction as well. So here we go. Let's see, number one. Now, this I don't think I, oh, I, maybe I did. Uh, Hebrews 9, is that verse 11, right? And then 24. There's no such thing as that. Well, we'll try it again. Hebrews 9.11. This one's actually very intriguing. I didn't mention this last week. I did mention it on the tape when I re-recorded re- it last week, uh, Tuesday night. Uh, here's the deal. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, watch this carefully here, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. Okay, now let me skip down. Hebrews 9, verse 24. Here we go. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now, if you're catching it, what the author of Hebrews is arguing is, Jesus didn't enter the holy place of the physical Jerusalem temple, which is merely a copy of the true temple. He entered the true temple. Now, he's not saying that that the Jerusalem temple is a false one. He's saying it's a copy. It's therefore not the real one. It's merely a copy. The real one is the heavenly temple. And notice what he says about the heavenly temple. He's quoting Daniel, or alluding to Daniel, right? It's not made with hands. Right? Verse 24, he did not enter a holy place made with hands. Instead, he made, you know, he entered this this heavenly temple uh, as well. So, the author of Hebrews has a very significant and interesting temple theology there. Uh, And then it's also reiterated in Hebrews 8, uh, 1 and 2. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest. In chapter 7 is a wonderful chapter on the high high priesthood of Jesus. Who has taken his seat at the right hand of God, uh, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, in the, in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. And of course, which the Lord pitched would be synonymous with, not made with hands. All right, so we see now, uh, the end times temple is the one that Jesus entered into, right? uh, and, and it's being equated with the heavenly temple. All right, next thing, letter C, uh, on the outline here, the new outline. Uh, the stone became a great mountain, it says, in chapter 2, verse 35, I believe it is, of the book of Daniel. And that confirms that, this, that, the, that it's a temple. And I, I think I did mention this last week. All right. The stone became a great mountain, Daniel 2.35. That confirms that it's a temple. And it's also depicted in terms of the Garden of Eden. And I, I alluded to, or I, actually I think I read Ezekiel last week, where it says the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. And then it's also the place of God's dwelling place makes it a temple. So Eden's a mountain, and it's a, the place of God's dwelling. The place of God's dwelling, by definition, is a temple. And then I think this is on your outline here next, right? Number two, mountain and temple are associated throughout the Old Testament. I believe I read Isaiah chapter 2. Uh, if I didn't, I did on Tuesday night. Uh, um, there's, and there's all kinds of other references as well. And then Isaiah 66. Let me read that now. I didn't read that uh, last week here. Isaiah 66. All right. And this is the end of the, gospel, of the book of Isaiah. 
Right, now, let, let, me, let me clarify. The end of the book of Isaiah is kind of bringing to a climax the entire vision of Isaiah. And the second half of the vision of Isaiah is what? God will restore you from exile. And when he restores you from exile, he's going to fulfill all of his covenant promises. And we have Eden language, running through temple language, running through Isaiah from chapters 40 through 66. And here's the climax. Then they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord. On horses and chariots and litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. So, for Isaiah, the end times mountain is called Jerusalem. Okay? Says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites. I really probably should have read verse 19, huh? Let me go back to verse 19. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations of Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Rosh, Tabul, Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my, my, uh, heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. Why did I read that? Because verse 21, I'll take some of them for priests and Levites. I'm going to make Gentiles into priests and Levites, according to Isaiah's vision. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, verse 22, uh, will endure before me, says the Lord, so your offspring and your, new, and your name will endure. And it shall be uh, from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will bow down before me, says the Lord. Uh, and I won't bother with verse 24, because it raises more questions than I'm ready to answer right now, uh, uh, here as well. So, in fact, I'll click over there so you can't read it. There we go. All right, here we go. The point, though, is mountain and temple are closely associated throughout the Old Testament. And in fact, this particular vision actually says that in the end times, I'm going to call it the end times, whatever you want to define that is, um, come to our seminar and find out. Um, uh, uh, it, it's, it's, it's mountain and temple and imagery. Right? You see, Isaiah 65 is the famous reference of a new heavens and a new earth. Right? And this restoration of creation, which is, oh, uh, let's put it this way, it's in the language of the restoration of Eden. So, uh, I hope I'm making my point clear here, right? In fact, point number three, every temple in the Old Testament is on a mountain. All right? Technically, it's every biblical temple. You know, every temple for the people of God is on a mountain, but I didn't want to go into the details of that. I, I figured you would assume that. All right, letter D now. It filled the whole earth. So, Daniel 2.35 said it became a great mountain. Daniel 2.35 says it filled the whole earth. That also associates with Eden. And we read Genesis 1.26 last week, right? Which says what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the commission of Eden for creation. The implication, and, and, and by the way, if you want to read, if any of you guys want to read a, a more scholarly work, G.K. Beale has a book called The Temple and the Church's Mission. Um, it's, it's, it's a biblical theology of the temple. So it's, it's, only, it's not for the faint of heart. And, and he is going to build on this whole argument throughout the entire book. He goes through the, the entire scriptures in which he makes, this, he makes this argument, namely that Eden is the goal of scripture, that all of scripture looks back to. In other words, the fulfillment is a fulfillment of Eden. So he makes this argument in, in much greater depth as well. Uh, uh, the temple and the church's mission. All right? So... Mission, M-I-S-S-I-O-N. All right, here we go. So it filled the whole earth, associated with the Garden of Eden as well. 
uh, Isaiah 2, uh, 2 and 3. Let me read that also. I think I did last week. If not, I did on Tuesday night. But nonetheless, Isaiah 2, 2 and 3. Now this is the beginning of Isaiah, right? Our introduction to Isaiah. And in our introduction to Isaiah, he's going to set the stage for where he's going to take us at the end. How's that? Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. Now it will come about in the last days. So hence we can call it this an end times temple. The mountain of the house of the Lord. What's the house? Temple, and it's on a mountain. So here we go. We have mountain and temple and last days. Will be established as chief of the mountains, will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And there's... What's interesting is, instead of the Eden expanding to the entire creation, in Isaiah, the entire creation comes to Jerusalem. All right? Now, if we look to the prophets here, I'm going to get deep for a second here. And I fear I was too deep last week, so I'm going to try not to do this too much tonight. If we, the, the point is, Eden expands throughout the entire creation. We see that running throughout Scripture. So, what we assume Genesis is talking about, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that's before the fall. That was the intention. That as Adam and Eve filled the earth, Eden would expand. Sin came in the way, and God says, get out of here, you can't be in Eden anymore. Right? And Eden's the temple. Separation of God from man. All right. The goal, however, is to bring Eden, the temple, back to the entire creation. That's what God wants to restore. Which most notably, by the way, is God's presence amongst his people. That's what Eden, throughout all creation, means. God wants to dwell with us for eternity. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. See where we're going with this, right? All right. In Isaiah, it's all of creation coming to Jerusalem. Well, then we go to Zechariah. And in Zechariah, end of chapter 1, and in Zechariah chapter 2, he's told to measure Jerusalem. And then he realizes, I can't. Because it keeps expanding. It's immeasurable. And so we see now, guess what? Jerusalem's filling the earth. And of course, ultimately, I'm probably getting ahead of myself now, we're at Revelation 21 and 22 now, aren't we? What's Revelation 21 and 22? The New Jerusalem. But what's the New Jerusalem? I saw the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to the earth. And if you read it carefully, it encompasses the entire earth. It's not like one city on the earth. It's the entire earth. It encompasses the entire earth. All right? And of course, the New Jerusalem is a temple uh, um, as well, which I think I'm going to mention here below uh, um, as well. So here we go. Letter E. Now, the four parts of the four kingdoms, Daniel 23 through 20, I'm sorry, Daniel 2, 37 through 40, are, it's easy to see how Judaism of Jesus' day thought that the enemy was the pagan nations. Right? I mentioned this last week. I don't think I did on Tuesday night, but I did last week in class. And that is this. The Jews of Jesus' day thought that the enemy was Rome. The enemy was the pagan nations because the stone destroys these four kingdoms. Therefore, kingdoms are evil. Kingdom of God is good. When the Messiah comes, he'll destroy these pagan nations. And Jesus' message is what? We're letting the Gentiles in. Right? The Good Samaritan. What? You're letting that guy in too? Yeah, let the... Let the many are going to come from east and west and recline at the, tab- at, the, at the table of Abraham, at the feast of Abraham. 
What? No, that's our enemy. And Jesus' answer is no. The ruler of the nations is the devil. And that's our enemy. So I'm fulfilling Daniel. The kingdom of God destroys the kingdoms of this world. But it's the Lord of this world that I'm after. And it's not Caesar. It's the devil. Um, and so we'll see that more, more as well. One second, I'm going to finish this sentence here, Stephen. Um, the thought, uh, but for Jesus, it was the devil who rules over the pagan nations. All right? Yes. All right. Uh, 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 Jesus casting out demons was a sign that the kingdom of God has come. He cast out demons, sign the kingdom of God has come. I alluded to this last week, I believe, on um, Thursday night anyways. Remember the two parables in Mark? One's the parable of the vineyard, in which the stone the village rejected became the capstone. We, we read that. The other is, is the parable of the sower. And he went out to sow the seeds. And he sowed it liberally, right? And some fell on the roadsides. And what happened to the seed on the roadsides? The birds snatched it away. But when Jesus interprets the parable later on, Mark 4, wherever passage you want to read it, right? Matthew 13, etc. The birds are Satan. The problem is, the devil has snatched the seed. That's the problem. All right? Now, by the way, he was actually accusing the Pharisees of being influenced by the devil. The reason why you don't hear is because the devil has snatched your seed away. All right? um, if you read Mark 4 carefully, see what happens at the end of Mark 3? We know how you do miracles. It's by the power of the devil. And he says, you know what? I had to bind the strong man. In order to clear this house, I had to bind the strong man. And you want to know the truth? The ones who's been influenced by the devil? It's you. Let me tell you a parable. And that's exactly what, you know. You wonder why he got killed. It's not because he said nice things. It's because, you know, calling the Pharisees, Satan, you know, Satan. Okay. Um, right, here we go. Number two, for Jesus, anyone who's not fighting on his side uh, is siding uh, with the enemy. All right. And then letter F, the stone in the New Testament. We read these references last week now. The stone the builders rejected in the New Testament is Jesus. Right? Uh, Mark 12, we looked at that parable uh, specifically, the end of it, uh, um, as well. And then I didn't read Acts 4, verse 11 last week, but it's on there now. And, of course, this is Peter. And the answer is, very simply, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the very cornerstone. Okay? Um, and then, of course, John chapter 2, which we referenced last week as well, Jesus references himself as a temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. But the temple he was speaking of was his body. All right, now let's bring this to a conclusion now. What does it mean? It means the stone of Daniel 2 has already come. Okay? Now, I'm not denying a future fulfillment here, so don't misunderstand me. I'm saying it's already begun. Jesus has already binded the strong man. He's already... You know, where, oh, death is your victory, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. The devil, has, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. We, we read that last week, didn't we? Luke 10, uh, 18 through 20, or 18 and 19. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, and I've given you authority, authority to tread on serpents. That's Genesis 3. So the reality then is the stone has already begun to establish his kingdom. The kingdom of God is here. Now, I'm not denying at all the New Jerusalem, right? The New Jerusalem is the ultimate fulfillment and the climax of it all. 
Because even though the kingdom of God has come, sin is still here. Death is still here. In Revelation 21, there's no longer any mourning or crying or pain or death. Right? So there's, 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 there's an all, what we call this, right, the already and the not yet. It's already here and it's not yet here. Paul can say in Ephesians 2, you're already seated with him in the heavenly realms. You're already there. Ephesians 2, uh, verse 6. And yet, we're not yet there. Right? So, now, the next point then is this. Note, note this here now, and that is the people of God are a temple. We read 2 Corinthians 5, 1 already. Peter is the rock. We won't get into the Catholic Protestant argument here. Matthew 16, 18. And disciples are pillars. Galatians 2. He refers to Peter, James, and John as pillars. Pillar is a reference to the temple. And in fact, all Christians are pillars. Well, right, technically, Revelation 3 says, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. So you're already a pillar, and you're going to be a pillar. See, Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are being built into a spiritual house, a temple. And he says, Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation is the apostles and prophets, and then we're being built up. So calling us pillars, that's what stands on the foundation stone, and it holds up right the building. This the reality then becomes, we're a temple. Right? And I won't go much further because I'm going to spend some time on this uh, uh, in the seminar that we have on the end times coming up in, in the, at the end of April. Uh, one of the things we'll talk about is this, this end times temple. Jesus has begun it. We're a continuation of it. And I mean, the, the inference is, 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 is there, right? And that's simple. And that's this. If we're temples, then we must be what? What must we be? I'm speaking ethnically, not not holy. If we're temples, requirement number one: be holy. Second Peter, not not Leviticus. Second Peter, be holy, because I'm holy. If we're kings and priests, then we have to be holy to conduct priestly duties. So uh, there's tremendous significance and ramifications for this as well. All right. Daniel 7 is going to take us in a really wonderful direction now to add to this thought. But does anybody have any thoughts, questions, comments, sign remarks? Please, Anthony. Well, that, that's right. And, and um, uh, uh, I'm doing some work on John 14 right now um, uh, because I have a, 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 a strong conviction on how John 14 is to be read, which I briefly referenced at, at the, at the uh, last seminar, uh, that I think is misread. I think John 14 is misread. Uh, um, I... I uh, if I allude to it now, you guys are all going to go, oh, Rob's a heretic because I didn't defend myself. So I'm opening myself up for trouble here, right? It, it's okay. Uh, yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Especially it's on tape. I'll turn the tape off. Uh, here we go. The, the, uh, I, I'm working on this in, uh, in writing, actually. So, so hopefully I'll have something come out soon. <laughs> uh, six months. Um, the standard understanding that, that's been commonplace amongst many of us is I go to prepare a place for you. means Jesus says, I'm going to go to heaven, so that I'll, and I'll bring you there someday. I don't believe that's the case. I think if you read John 14, 15, 16, and 17 carefully, the fact is this, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to bring the Holy Spirit to you. So that where I am, there you may be also. All right? In my Father's house, dwelling places, right? there are many rooms. Right? And if you abide in me, abiding, all this language from John 14, 15, 16, 17, is, is, well, it's for your good that I go, he says. 
Same sermon, same speech. It's not for your good that I go because someday you'll get to go to heaven with me. That's true. Don't misunderstand me. But it's for your good that I go because when I go, the Holy Spirit will come. And I think the Holy Spirit's the fulfillment of that. And when Paul says we're temples, it's because the Holy Spirit indwells us. That's, that's unequivocal. And I think, therefore, the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of what Jesus was saying in John 14. And I'll, I'll argue that by, by comparing Revelation 12. All right, so now we'll get in Revelation. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in a better stead now. Um, Revelation 12, I think verse 6, specifically is building on John 14. Um, you might not see it, but, but it's there, especially in the Greek text. Uh, and it'll come across a little bit in some English translations as well, but I'll have to explain that more uh, more detail later. Question, yes. Oh, yeah, great. Leviticus 19. Um, you know, right? What does it mean to be holy uh, um, uh, there? It means to be pure and undefiled. Um, and Leviticus 19 is the holiness code. And again, now we have to take that passage and apply it in, in a modern context or a contemporary context. But it's, it's, it's holiness in business affairs, in family relations, in social relations, um, um, uh, you know, uh, um, honesty, integrity, you know, let's put it this way. How about this? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's holiness. Yeah, well, it's, it's all 19. It's, it's the whole chapter. It's, uh, uh, so, yes, it's all of Leviticus 19. Yeah, great question. Thank you. Somebody else had their hand up. No, is, is, I wouldn't say, is Jesus Eden? I wouldn't go that far. I'd say Jesus is the fulfillment of the restoration of Eden. So in other words, I wouldn't quote Jesus with Eden, I'd quote Jesus with the temple, which by definition is the place of God's dwelling, which is what Eden was. But if we're thinking of Eden as a place, right, yeah. But if you think of Eden as the place of God's presence, then sure, Jesus is Eden. But very good. Daniel chapter 3 now. The topic of Daniel 3 is majorly confronting us with the issue of idolatry. So, so tonight's topic is really going to be to, to review a little bit, Daniel 1, we saw the issue and the danger and the threat to Daniel and his friends was assimilation, right? The danger for Daniel and his friends in Daniel 1 was becoming so much part of the people that you don't stand out in any way, shape, or form. So Daniel's answer is, we're going to be known as wise men because God gave us wisdom, and therefore, how about if we use our diet? As the, we're not going to eat the same diet as them. And therefore, when we're wise and healthy, God will get the glory. All right, Daniel 2 now, the danger was, the danger was being, you know, counted among the pagans because it's going to get you killed um, because all the wise men can't interpret the dream. And of course, the answer is Daniel's faith is in faith in God, who reveals mysteries, is the means by which Daniel was saved. Now remember, in Daniel 2... Daniel went ahead and stuck up for all the wise guys, right? All the wise men, right? So, hey, don't kill any of these guys, which, was, which we found uh, to be interesting as well. All right, now, as we get into Daniel 3, the story is going to become uh, one of, um, uh, do, we, do we go with the status quo? How's that? The danger is just kind of going with the status quo. Well, everybody's doing it uh, type of thing. And uh, so we've got this big image uh, of Nebuchadnezzar's as well. So let's read a little bit of Daniel 3, and I'm going to go backwards. Verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar had, had an image made of gold, 
Uh, the height of which was 60 cubits, and a good translation is going to keep that measurement instead of saying 90 feet.、Um, 60 cubits, and its width was six cubits. That's the reason why six six. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar the king. Now, by the way, remember he just had a vision of an image, so that's still there, literally, literally, whatever that word is.、Um, Verse two. Nebuchadnezzar the king sent a word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the province to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Now, notice how many times that phrase occurs. Nebuchadnezzar. End of verse three. That Nebuchadnezzar had set up. End of verse five. That Nebuchadnezzar had set up. End of verse seven. That Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay. Daniel's making a point, isn't he? All right, so let's skip down to verse、uh, four. The herald loudly proclaimed to you the co- command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of, and we don't really care what these musical instruments are, except that there are six of them. And of course, there are other musical instruments that aren't mentioned because all kinds of music. When you hear all that, fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Whoever does not Fall down and worship shall immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire, and so of course they all do this. All right, so let's skip on down now、uh, to verse、uh, 11. Okay, let's see here.、Um, uh, well, verse verse 10 actually probably more relevant. Uh, um, uh, the the wise men came forward and said, "Hey, you yourself, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of these six instruments and all the other ones as well." Is to fall down and worship the golden image. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a furnace of fire. Well, guess what? Daniel's buddies haven't done it, right? So, uh, verse twelve.、Uh, There are some Jews that you've appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you set up. Right, notice the references to the golden image and you set up. Nebuchadnezzar was in a rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these men were brought before the king. Is it true, verse fourteen, that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up?、Right. Now, verse fifteen. Now, if you're ready and you hear these musical instruments that we don't really care about,、um, except that there are six of them and many others that aren't mentioned,、um, and then、uh, very well. Middle of verse fifteen. But if you don't worship them, you will immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what god is there that can deliver you out of my hands? And all Daniel's readers go, "I know one. I know one. I know." Right? It's just really well written for, you know, you know the story. Oh, I know one. I know one. All right. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, "Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Not something you're supposed to say to a king."、Um, by the way, the king of the world. You know, essentially, this is the, the ruling king of the world,、uh, as far as it's concerned as well.、Um, and let's look. Let's now look at their response carefully here, because it's, it's it's embedded with with a lot of intrigue, isn't it? Okay.、Um, oops, I'm on verse、uh, 17. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But even if He does not. Let it be known to you, O King, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated uh, as well. All right, we'll stop there. I think you guys know the rest of the story, but we'll, we'll reference it here in a few minutes as well. Uh, yeah, why seven times uh, hotter? And the answer is, well, probably significant for Daniel, right? Seven is this, it, it's as hot as it can get. It's perfection, it's completion, etc. cetera, uh, um, there. All right, before we go in, in the details of this passage, let's read uh, a couple places. First off, Psalm 23. Psalm 23, you know it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul, and he guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All right, now, uh, the second one I wanted to read right now, yeah, Isaiah 43. I don't know if this is on your notes. Uh, well, Psalm 23 wasn't, so why should I start now? Um, Isaiah 43, verse 1. Isaiah was written very likely before the time of Shadrach. I keep doing that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they're aware of this passage, I do believe. Now thus says the Lord, O Creator, um, uh, your Creator, O Jacob, and he formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, which is probably Exodus, right? I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sabah in your place. Right? Here's this great promise. And of course, Isaiah 43 is written to Israelites in exile. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are Israelites in exile. Right? Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are become known in the Jewish world after Daniel now as the exemplar, exemplars, the examples of the people of God that suffer for doing that which is righteous. They're the model. They're the model of the suffering righteous people. They become idolized, in a sense, not just in VeggieTales, um, uh, but here as well. So Isaiah 43. All right, now, the next one, I think this is on your outline. Here we go. Um, let's go to Isaiah 44. This is uh, up at the top. I tax on idolatry in the Old Testament. Let's just do three of them. They're in the Psalms. They're, 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 these attacks are kind of everywhere. In which, and what I mean by attacks is the prophet is attacking idolatry. All right? And, of course, he's actually mocking idolatry is what he's doing. Uh, and the most famous one is Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20. So that's the one that we're going to look at right now. Here, here we go. Here's Isaiah mocking those who practice idolatry. Those who fashion a graven image, all of them are futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put to shame. And seeing and knowing is very important in the book of Isaiah. He who, is, who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, talking about the man who makes the idols now, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them assemble themselves, let them stand up, let them tremble, let them together be put to shame. The man shapes an iron into a cutting tool, 
and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working on it with a strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with a red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and he makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in, his, in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and he warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. And he also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, the, the wood being that, right? Over this half he eats meat and he is, as he roasts a roast and he is satisfied. And he also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god. His graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for thou art my God. They don't know, nor do they understand, for he is smeared over their eyes, so they cannot see, and their hearts, so they cannot comprehend. And no one recalls. I need to scroll down one more verse here. No one recalls. Got a glitch. There we go. Uh, verse 19. Nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire, and I have also baked bread over its coals, and I roast meat and I eat it, and then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Right? Is there not a lie in my right hand? The point of it is, right, the guy who makes the idol is a fallen, fallible human being who faints if he doesn't drink enough. So what does that say for the product of his making? And then the idol itself, it can't see, its eyes are plastered over. It can't hear, it can't understand. It's a block of wood. Half the block of wood, you made a fire with it and ate dinner. And the other half of it, you made a god? you got to be kidding me. It's a block of wood. All right? Uh, Isaiah 46, I think that's also in your outline, goes one step further with this as well. All right, and Bel is one of the gods of Babylon. All right, Bel and Marduk, another name for the same god, Bel. Bel has bowed down. It's a block of wood, by the way, right? Nebo stoops over. The images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome. You have to carry your god around. A load for the weary beast. They stooped over. They bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but out of themselves got into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of, Israel, of the house of Israel, for you have borne me from birth. Uh, you who have, I'm sorry, you have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. In other words, I, Yahweh, I carried you. You're carrying your gods around but I'm carrying you. You don't carry me. I carry you. Right? Uh, verse 4. Even to your old age, I shall be the same. And even to your graying years, I shall bear you. I have done it, and I shall carry you. And I shall bear you, and I shall deliver you. To whom would you liken me? And make me equal and compare me, that we should be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse 
and weighs silver on the scale, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god, and they bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it up upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It doesn't move from its place, though when they cry to it, it can't answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. According to Isaiah, this is why they were carried into exile. Because the Israelites had fallen into idolatry. You're in exile because of idolatry. But idolatry is stupid. It's it's just silly Uh, um, as well. So now, let's go back, unless you have any questions or comments here or thoughts here, uh, to Daniel 2. Actually, it's probably a good time for a break. We'll take two questions before we take a break. Where's Daniel? Uh, hard to know. Daniel's not in Daniel 3? Not not the picture. Uh, well, it's these three guys specifically. You wonder if, and we have to speculate, because that's all we can do, because Daniel is not part of the story, is the answer to the question. You wonder if they were afraid of Daniel. Right? Again, how much... Uh, uh, Probably a good measure of time has gone on from chapter 2 to chapter 3. But obviously the author of Daniel Daniel himself is bringing us together with wanting us to read Daniel 3 in light of Daniel 2 because it's this image, it's of gold. You you have all these parallels as well. But maybe they just didn't want to touch Daniel. They were afraid of him, so they went to these three guys instead. Just that observation. Um, uh, Yeah, Uh, the answer is uh, Nebuchadnezzar is in a lot of trouble. Yeah, he, he set up this image. And the answer is, who's in control? See, what's the message of Daniel? God's in control. God's in control. God's in control. Right? It's written to exiles who believe that Nebuchadnezzar and his gods must be better than our God because Nebuchadnezzar beat us up. And therefore, Bel, the god, or Marduk, the god of Babylon, must be superior to Yahweh. And through Daniel and the story, we're realizing Yahweh controls these gods. God, Yahweh controls the nations. They, right? Um, remember, it was a, was a chapter, I'm thinking of the reference where it says, God has established you as the king. Well, it's, obviously it's chapter 1, verse 2, but that's Jehoiakim. But um, there's a reference in Daniel 2 uh, to where God has established you as the king, O Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, there, uh, we'll find it during the break. Let's take a quick break. Turn the mic back on. It does not say what the image is of, but it's very likely an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's like a statue of himself. All right, let's get started. Or let's get going again now. Uh, in uh, Daniel chapter three, which we haven't even really gotten into as well. Uh, let's pick up. We'll just pick up the story where we left off. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel chapter nineteen. Yeah. Very good. These men were filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he orders it to be uh, heated up seven times. Verse 20, he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. These men were tied up in their, in their clothes. Notice all the lists. Have you noticed all the lists? Lists of people, lists of places, lists of instruments, lists of clothing that they're wearing. Right? We've got a lot of lists in this particular uh, uh, chapter as well. Um, the, the, the point of, of this list of clothing is that the king was so ticked off, it's like, don't even take their clothes off. Just, just tie them up and get him in that furnace now. Uh, they weren't to be thrown in there fully clothed, apparently. Um, and for this reason, uh, because the king's command was so urgent, and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell in the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Nebuchadnezzar was astounded and stood up in haste, and he responded and said to the high officials, Was it not three men who were cast into the fire, in, in the midst, excuse me, of the fire? And they answered the king and said, Certainly, O king. And he said, Look, I see four. Four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth was like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar said, uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, middle of verse 26, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. And these men came out of the fire, and there's another list of, of officials uh, um, as well. Not a, and middle of verse 27, the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had even the smell of fire even come upon them. Right? It's like, you know, you got to shower after your barbecue, right? You know, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> not these guys. Uh, not these guys. Uh, let me scroll down now. And, of course, verse 28, um, Nebuchadnezzar responded, uh, similar to chapter 2 now, right? We got, there's a parallel between 2 and 3, isn't there? He responded, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him violated the king's command and yielded up their body so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses be reduced. What did I say? Did I really? So what? There's actually a tax critical issue here. Okay, whatever. You guys all know what I meant. If you're listening on tape, read it for yourself. So, anything offensive against the God of Shadrach? Me- Is that right? Okay. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their house reduced to rubbish heap. And as much as that there is no God who's able to deliver in this way, and he caused them to prosper, verse 30, uh, there as well. And of course, the moral of the story, right, um, is verse 29. They put their trust in him. They violated the king's command, and they yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. That is the key theme. I'm going to save my immediate desire to reference the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 11 right now, which I won't do. Let's go back now and discuss a couple of the key uh, features of this uh, um, uh, passage as well. Namely, uh, we want to talk about the issue of idolatry here before we're all done. Uh, um, as well. Uh, but verses, uh, really, their answer in verses 16 through 18, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't even need to give you an answer. Uh, verse 17, if it be so, our God whom we serve, let's see if we can bring that verse up and compare the translations for a second. All right, so uh, ESV, our, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, uh, and he will. Uh, most translations are going to be along that same line. He's able to rescue us. Uh, he's able to rescue us, etc. But verse 18 now. Um, but if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. Verse uh, uh, New American Standard. Even if he does not. Alright? Uh, Net Bible, if not, if he does not, but if not, but even if he doesn't. But if not, be it known to you. Now, is there, they are not going to defy the king's edict because God told them, don't worry about it, I'm going to protect you. They're, they're defying the king's edict because, matter of principle, this is what got us in exile. 
we're here because we've done that. Ain't doing it. Ain't doing it. Doesn't matter, you know, what it costs me as well. And, and this, 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 this principle, of course, this, this is why they are the model of the men of, of the people of God uh, for, well, for the book of Revelation too, by the way, right? For the book of Revelation, uh, the, 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 the event of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All right. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to do it. All right. We're not going to worship any of these, uh, these gods that you have uh, uh, put before us as well. All right. Next thing uh, here, let's see. Um, uh, Isaiah 43, we already read. God's promised to be present when Israel walks through the fire. Of course, they didn't realize uh, that it applied here. Oh, the fourth person in the fire. That's usually one of those issues that people want to talk about uh, um, there. The fourth person in the fire. Uh, I'm hearing Jesus. I'm hearing an angel. i got an angel going once, going twice. Going twice. <laughs> The king recognized them as something. Yeah, as something. Now, I don't think the text gives us a clear answer. What's that? Huh? One of the guards on fire? No. Because he's running around loose and not screaming. All right. Uh, um, as well. Um, look, the king said, verse 25. I'm not going to bring it up on the screen. Uh, I see four men. They're walking around the midst without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. All right, um, what verse was that, 25? All right, let's see here. Let's see if the translations do something with this. And if they do, all right, if they do, um, it's because they're trying to appease their English readers. Son of the gods, son of the gods, like that of a god, like a son of the gods. Yeah, New King James. Sorry about this. I've got to pick on it because it did it this time. Like the son of God. Um, Who's the speaker? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's not going to call him like the Son of God. He doesn't have a Son of God theology. Right? Daniel might, might, might realize, hey, I don't know if you realize what you're saying, but this is what you're saying. But you can't, inter- you can't translate, you can interpret it that way, you can't translate it that way. Make sense? So, when the priest, I'm sorry, when the, when the Roman centurion sees Jesus on the cross, Surely this man was the son of God in a Roman centurion's mouth or a son of a God. Interesting, right? I think Mark's doing something with that in the Gospel of Mark. But, but this one's emphatic. This, this is a pagan king who's a polytheist. And, he, and I'm sorry, I just don't think that that's any way you can translate it uh, um, uh, here um, uh, um, as well. Uh, in any way uh, at all. Like a son of the gods is a pagan way of referencing a polytheistic deity's manifestation, yes. Yeah, he doesn't have it yet. I, I, I totally agree with that. I don't think he's got it. So, what we left that question at the end of chapter 2 was a genuine worship in which I said, you know, what he says at the end of 2 is something that a pagan king could say. A polytheistic king could say. It doesn't, and he did homage to Daniel. He didn't do homage to Yahweh. Um, and now it's becoming clear, I don't think he's, you know, maybe chapter 4, another question, right? That question comes up again, but yes. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that's, uh, I don't think he's seeing, he thinks he's seeing Daniel. I think he's seeing, I think he's seeing a manifestation of one of the gods. That's all, that's all he thinks he's seeing as well. Now, so, that, but that's why we want to think, you know, we want to read Jesus into this. It makes sense. It's good theology. Now, some of you said angels, and of course you said an angel because 
It says an angel, right? What verse was that? 28. Blessed be the God who sent his angel. Uh, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar responded again now and says that as well. Who delivered his servant in, and put their trust in him. The problem is, is Daniel doesn't tell us. He quotes Nebuchadnezzar. That's his way of telling us. But we don't have Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar. Make sense? That, you understand what I mean by that? Daniel doesn't tell us in his own commentary what he thinks is really going on. Kind of like this. In, in the Gospel of John, Caiaphas says, it's good for one man that should, he should die for the save, and save the nation. And John says, I don't think Caiaphas realized what he was saying. So, Caiaphas meant, we'll kill this guy, and Rome won't do anything to us. But John says, he was prophesying for the nation and didn't realize it. Well, that's John telling us that. Daniel doesn't do that. He just quotes Nebuchadnezzar. So, it's almost impossible to answer the question. It just is. Now, an angel in Scripture, so we'll go back to the burning bush. In in Acts 7, Stephen says it was an angel of the Lord. In Exodus 3, my name is Yahweh. Right? Exodus 3 was God who appeared to Moses. In Acts 7, Stephen says it was the angel of the Lord. Well, so we have to be careful of the word angel. The word angel means messenger. That's what it means. Angelos, right? A messenger. Okay? A messenger could refer to your nature, an angel by nature, or your role. I'm serving as a messenger. I'm communicating a message to you. So the angel of the Lord could indeed be God, could indeed be divine. So Stephen referencing the angel of the Lord, and Exodus saying it was Yahweh who appeared to Moses, no problem, it really isn't, because that doesn't mean God's an angel. Okay? It just means that God was form, was functioning in the role of an angel at that point in time as well. So you have to be careful of the word angel. So even angel here doesn't actually clarify it for us. And again, it's in, it's in Nebuchadnezzar's mouth uh, um, here as well. The answer is, it's God, whether it's God by means of a messenger like Michael or God by means of the Son or whatever. It's God, right? That's the whole point, right? Uh, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. And God's delivered us. I mean, that's, the reader knows that much, that much uh, without question. So, All right, a couple questions I think we had. No? Very good. Okay, very good. Let's go to the issue of idolatry now. Um, because this... Uh, uh, we almost can't read Daniel 3 now and not bring it um, home uh, to the issue of, 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 of application here. So let's, let's do this. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 for idolatry. That's like the words of Jesus. Exactly. Matthew 6. I'm going to start in verse 19. I hope I have enough time to, to, to put this in a, in a clear context for us as well. Matthew 6, 19. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth and rust destroy, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Verse 21, for uh, 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is uh, uh, clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And then we'll continue on now, because I think it's very relevant. 
Verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall um, uh, eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Oh, uh, um, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. Verse 27, right? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? No, that's where I'm at. I'm at 29 now, right? 30. Thank you very much, George. But if God so raised the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. All right? And I really think that we read this in light of the context of idolatry. It's Christ or mammon. And if it's not Christ, it's idolatry. By definition of idolatry. All right, let me show you another reference here or two before I kind of bring this you know, let's, let's define idolatry uh, as we go. Psalm 115, not on your outline, I'm sure as well, right? Psalm 115, verse 4. Psalm 115, I'm going to read verses 4 through 8. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. The idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands, as opposed to the not made by human hands, right? They have mouths, but they cannot speak, eyes, but they cannot see, ears, but they cannot hear, they have noses, but they cannot smell. Hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Remember what Jesus says? Oftentimes, if you have ears to hear, let them hear. The reason why you don't have ears to hear is because you worship idols. And their ears are plugged, and they can't hear. It's actually Isaiah 6 that Jesus is referring to there. And he actually quotes Isaiah 6 in the, in the Mark 4 passage. Idolatry makes you like that which you worship. Right? It's a biblical principle that runs uh, uh, through, uh, through Scripture as well. Um, let's go to one, another reference here. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Uh, Deuteronomy four fifteen through 19. And then I'm going to skip down and read verses 23 through 25. For, uh, Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 19, and verses 23 through 25. Here, here's, here's Deuteronomy. This is the law. Watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, from the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fist that's in the water below. And beware, lest you lift up your eyes to the heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them. 
those which the Lord your God has allotted to all peoples under the whole heaven. Verse 23. Watch yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and you make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord has com- your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you become the ch- father of children and children's children, and have remained long in the land, not corruptly, and make an idol in the form of anything, and do that which is evil inside the, the Lord your God, so provoke him to anger, and then he goes on, I call heaven against you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scatter you to the nations. And this is what the prophet, remember, if you've been in our studies before, we talked about how the prophets are living in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says, guys, see, you didn't see any form in the fire. And therefore, God cannot be made, replicated by anything. Right? We'll talk about this in, in the, the worldview course coming up next term. It's called the creator and the creation distinction. We absolutely must at all times make a distinction between the creator and the creation. The creator is one of a kind. There is nothing like him. He existed eternally, and everything else that exists is, by definition, part of the creation. Therefore, to make an image, you must use something of the creation, and it, by definition, falls short of replicating God. But, of course, that's indeed uh, uh, what, what takes place. All right, let me see if I can define Deut- uh, um, uh, 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 and I know, one second, if you will, Stephen, if we have uh, The Illustrated Bible Dictionary defines idolatry as this. Whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. Whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. All right, Colossians 3, verse 5. That's worthy of bringing up here on the screen. Colossians 3, verse 5. This will strike you. Here we go. Colossians 3, verse 5. It's up on the screen, right? Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. See, it's so easy to read Daniel 3 and think this has no application to us in our world because, you know, we just don't have kings making, you know, uh, hey, there's an Obama statue. It's in, you know, San Francisco. We'll put one in Oakland, put one in Dallas. And everyone worship. It's not happening. But that's not what idolatry is. Whenever you, when you see through the prophets, you see adulter, adultery, it's idolatry. The prophets use the word adultery in terms of idolatry because Israel's relationship with Yahweh was a covenant. It's a marriage covenant. And they broke the covenant by going after other gods. It's idolatry. Right? Uh, um, as well. So here we go. Um, uh, uh, Tremper Longman says, I think in your commentary, behind every idol is self. Behind every idol is self. Uh, I think Jesus is calling it mammon. Right? Anything, and the reason why I read the rest of that passage in Matthew 6 is because is my reliance upon God Money, or power, or sex, or anything else as well. And by the way, Tim Keller has written a really a pretty good text. Not as good as, as the prodigal god, but it's still good. Um, Tim Keller called it's called Counterfeit Gods. Um, it's a, if you can see it here, it's a small little booklet. That's uh, not, not a small little booklet. It's it's two hundred pages, but they're not big pages. <laughs> they're small pages. All right. Um, the subtitle is The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power 
and the only hope that matters. And he spends the first several chapters defining idolatry, and then he goes on to talk about uh, the emptiness of it. Uh, and I think I had... I haven't read Richard Foster's book, so I can't answer the question. Sorry about that. I might not get to you, Stephen. Sorry. Here we go. Uh, after, after the global economic... This is from page um, 9, or IX, in the, in the introduction. After the global economic crisis be, uh, began in mid-2008, in mid there followed a tragic string of suicides of formerly wealthy and well-connected individuals. The acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.